0: I was a Christian, I was a believer, but I didn't have a profound love for the gospel, and the gospel wasn't at the center of my thinking. And I saw over and over
1: and over again, people's eyes would glaze over when people were quoting the King James to them. And I just thought, what are we doing?
0: The King James Bible had been at the center of my faith for my entire life up to that point. And the Lord, in his mercy, shifted things in my heart so that Jesus was at the center of my faith. We want a robust confidence that is unshakable and that can deal with human,
2: the fact that we don't get things perfect, and that's okay, and God knows that, and God still speaks
1: to us.
0: You are listening to the Textual Confidence Collective.
1: We're a group of friends who met at a theology conference a couple years ago and have kept up online, calling ourselves sort of informally, we'll see if the name sticks, the... Textual Confidence Collective, an august name for a tiny group of buddies who just love to talk about promoting confidence in the text of Scripture against different forms of what we call textual absolutism, which we'll define. That includes especially, and not only, various forms of defensive, exclusive use of the King James Version. So you are either watching or listening to the first of seven discussions on textual confidence among us, these friends. We're going to cover the history of textual transmission of the Bible. That is how the Bible came down to us over time. Then the theology of textual transmission. Then the story of the Textus Receptus, that's the Greek New Testament edition, broadly speaking, behind the King James Version. And then some of the nitty-gritty of textual criticism. We've got some experts, two world experts are working on it uh, in our little group, and two guys who also know a thing or three, or maybe two in my case. So even before I get everybody to tell their stories and therefore introduce themselves, I'd actually like to ask pastor and PhD candidate Peter Montoro, who hails from my state, to explain the three poles that we see in this debate. Take it away, Peter.
2: So there's basically three, uh, three positions uh, that we, we've used to sort of put together a spectrum of, of, of a map, as it were, of, this, of, of um, positions on the text. So you have a textual skepticism, textual absolutism, and textual confidence. So a textual skeptic would be someone like Bart Ehrman. Ehrman would say, well, if God really gave us the Bible, then he would have given it to us on golden tablets or written it in the sky so that we would know if he inspired it, he would give us every word exactly uh, the way he wanted us to have it. We would not have to do textual criticism. We don't have to compare manuscripts. Um, and, and Ehrman would say, because we have to do this work, because we have to toil on the text, therefore we can't trust the text because if we have any uncertainty at all, then we just don't know what God said. And so, therefore, it can't be God who's speaking. It has to be men who are speaking. That'd be roughly a summary, be a lot more nuanced than that, but that's basically his position. Uh, And then there are many people, this is the way I was brought up to believe, that um, their position is, well, if we can, we have to know the words exactly. We have to have absolute confidence in every single word uh, to be able to trust the text. But we believe the Bible is the word of God. uh, And so, therefore... We must not have to do any work on the manuscripts. We must have every Greek word or every English word, even in the King James, exactly right. Uh, and because we do trust the text, and because we believe this is necessary uh, to trust the text, therefore we're going to postulate, uh, we're going to say uh, that this is actually what took place. And what we'd want to... to so push- that
1: that's textual absolutism.
2: Right, exactly. Okay. So that'd be a textual absolutist perspective, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, and then a, a position of textual confidence would say that toil and trust can go together so that because of what we believe in the providence of God and because we believe that God can use ordinary human beings to transmit his word, and I'll be talking more about this later on, uh, but just how God uses ordinary human beings to preach his word. He also has used ordinary human beings to copy and to translate and to edit and to do all the other things uh, that are done with the word of God. And yet God is still at work through human beings, uh, just as he is in the church and in all the other acts of God's providence. Uh, and so we want to say to Bart Ehrman, we would, we would say, no, we don't want to be skeptical, but you don't have to become the mere image of Ehrman uh, in order to have trust in the text. And, and really, one of the things that I, I think a lot about is this idea, it's called horseshoe theory, that the more you focus on your opponents, the more you become like them. And so the two extremes tend to tend to bend towards each other. Uh, so you see this with, you know, fascism and communism, actually on the ground, they don't look that different. So in theory, one's extreme right and one's extreme left, but in practice, they are very, very similar. Uh, And so you see that a lot, that the more you focus on your ideological opponents, the more you become like them. And so what we want to say is let's back off um, from trying to be the mere image of Ehrman and saying the opposite of everything that he he would say, Uh, and let's focus on the actual broad, big place to stand that God has given us, confidence in the text and toil on the text and trust in the text. And we would label that position textual confidence, and there's you know room for a uh, different positions, um, and you know within not,
1: textual confidence, within
2: textual confidence, exactly. Like yeah. There's room for a few different places, you know, places to stand within that. But we want to get people off the ledges uh, right. because they can take you to a bad place.
1: But we're we're not saying that are that people who prefer the. King James exclusively are fascists or communists. Let's just be clear about that. Very
2: clear about that. No, not saying
3: that. As as you mentioned, the horseshoe theory, I've seen this in action, actually. So I've I've seen uh, discussions about particular textual variants and someone who is a textual absolutist saying, like, well, we don't even have enough manuscripts for that book of the Bible anyway. So there's no way you can reconstruct it, which is ironically the same argument you would get from someone like Bart Ehrman. And they end up undercutting, and this is what I'm most
2: passionate about. They end up undercutting people's confidence in the Bible across the board, right. in order to defend every iota of their their preferred position. Right. They end up, they end up cutting the props out from under everybody. <laughs>
1: right. right. So I, I've I've heard Tim, I think, say before. I thought this was really perceptive. Whoever said it was perceptive that they've never heard more attacks on the Bible or um, efforts to undermine people's trust in it than they have from those who are defending an absolutist perspective on the King James Version. So everybody knows that when you've got three positions laid out, the third one is right, (laughs) right? So we are adopting this terminology, we believe, in textual confidence, and we're trying to set that up in contradistinction to textual skepticism and textual absolutism. And if you're going to understand, these, any listeners or viewers are going to understand the conversations that we're going to have in, Lord willing, six more episodes after this one, they're going to need to remember those three perspectives. Again, textual skepticism, textual absolutism, and the right one, that is the third one, textual confidence. Now, um, this is going out on my YouTube channel. For those who don't end up uh, seeing it online, hearing the podcast version, you can see the video on my YouTube channel, um, and those who watch my YouTube channel know some of my story. I'll tell a little bit of it again for the podcast audience, but I'd like to hear, actually in this first episode, I'd like to hear from everybody. Your way of introducing yourself can be to tell the story of why you care about this debate. The why why you've taken the time and frankly money to come down to Dallas, Texas, where we are recording right now, thanks to the kindness of some other Christian folks, and record these podcasts about that are that are promoting textual confidence. Can I start with Tim Berg? I've known you Tim, boy, has it been four years now? And yeah. we just immediately became fast friends. We were obviously on the same page in so many ways. I've appreciated your graciousness, Tim, as you deal with people online over and over and over again. I've seen you respond like a Christian to people's provocations, and I bet that some of your story is going to explain that. Tell us your story. Why are you interested in this topic?
0: Yeah, I mean, my interest in the topic started in some ways at a very young age. I was raised in a home that I would today call a textually absolutist home. We didn't use that terminology. We were kind of in the right-hand wing of the King James Only movement. Uh, we went to a Hiles Anderson church. The pastor was a Hiles Anderson graduate who wouldn't support any missionaries anywhere that didn't come from Hiles Anderson. Uh, and so we had Al Lacey, Dr. Al Lacey would come and preach for us every year, preach the same sermons every year about the King James Bible garden tools. It's a great sermon. You can look it up online and listen to it. It's not really a great sermon, but it's a powerful, rhetorically effective sermon, uh, about the King James Bible. And I actually at home had an even more extreme influence, because my mom was an author in that movement. She self-published and wrote a book on the King James Bible. And she actually thought that a lot of the stuff that was out there from the names that we would know, like Peter Ruckman or Gail Ripplinger, from her perspective, that was a little liberal because it didn't take quite the full exact right position on the King James Bible, which was, this was what I was raised believing, uh, that the King James Bible had existed for all of eternity in heaven. And that it essentially just descended from heaven in 1611 for us. Uh, perfectly, exactly, no editions of the King James were different. So I had that kind of extreme view through most of my youth. As I fell in love with Bible study, I was a believer um, from a very, very young age. Uh, And that was just the paradigm I operated with. We came to um, Central Baptist Church in Ponca City, where Brother John Waterloo was the pastor. And my views moderated a little bit. I moved towards a little bit more of a mainstream King James only, um, and maybe even a little bit of a TR view at that point and looked at going to a Bible college, almost ended up at Hiles Anderson. I ended up at a different uh, location at Heartland Baptist Bible College, which also had a more moderate, more healthy, respectful attitude and view. Um, And during my four years there, uh, doing their four-year Bible diploma, landed at essentially a TR position, Would would have defended the TR, would never have pointed to an error in the King James, but had moderated myself enough where I would have claimed that instead of the King James Bible being perfect and inspired, Uh, The Greek text behind it is. And then in the last few years, I went into their grad school and did a few years of grad school. And during my time there, began to face some real questions um, about what I'd been taught, about what I would believed about the King James, where it came from, Greek manuscripts. As I asked people questions, they pointed me towards resources that I'd heard about, but had never read. One, One professor suggested that I read FHA Scrivener. Another one told me, read Bergen's books. His are the best defense of the King James Bible that has ever been written. Um, And and so I did. I did what I was told. I got Bergen's books. I read them, and I was somewhat shocked. And I know not everybody would be shocked. Some people have a much better understanding, but I didn't. I was somewhat shocked to realize that Bergen didn't believe what I had been taught. He didn't believe this view that the King James Bible was perfect or that all the manuscripts supported it. Uh, He held a very, very different view, in fact. Um, And so I started having real struggles with what I had been taught, what I believed, what I'd been teaching others. I would taught other people in classes about the perfection of the King James Bible for years. I, I'd done it in Sunday school classes, in my preaching. I had written on it uh, for other people. But now I was facing these really serious questions. And I came to almost, in a sense, an existential crisis of my own faith because more fundamentally than just my view on the King James Bible, I had structured my Christian faith in such a way that the King James Bible was at the center of it. The Bible broadly was at the center of it. But the King James Bible in particular was at the center of it. So as I started asking these questions and wondering, could the Bible be wrong? Could the King James Bible have an error in it? I realized deep in my soul, my whole faith was on the line. I I was at a point where if I came back with wrong answers, I could walk away from Christian faith. Like I could sense that. I I didn't in my mind think, well, okay, I'm going to turn my back. But I could sense that that was the level of thing that I was wrestling with. Um, And it's one reason I love to be And want to be careful as I talk with others about this issue, because when you've structured your faith that way, this is a huge thing. A shift like this, a change in position on something like this can be so, so massive and so important. And if you're not careful in how it's done, it can be so spiritually devastating to a person's soul. And I I was there like I was in anguish, spending times with the Lord, crying, wrestling, weeping, thinking, well, what's going to happen if I go down this route? But in God's grace and mercy, I didn't just ask those questions and come to a better view. He brought me more importantly, far more importantly, to a healthier view of Christianity that was grounded on the gospel. And I fell in love for the first time in my life. I don't mean I wasn't a believer before I was, and I know I'll get understood at this point, but I I was a Christian. I was a believer, but I didn't have a profound love for the gospel, and the gospel wasn't at the center of my thinking the King James Bible had been at the center of my faith for my entire life up to that point. And the Lord, in his mercy, shifted things in my heart so that Jesus was at the center of my faith. The gospel was at the center of my faith. And from that position, I realized now I had the bravery to ask questions that I hadn't been able to ask before, that I had been afraid of before. And with that confidence, as the Lord did that in my heart over the course of a few years, from some friends pouring into me in my own study, then I was able to ask those questions and say, hey, now I'm allowed to land wherever the truth points. Now I can ask these questions honestly, and whatever comes up true, I can follow Jesus into it instead of following it away from Jesus. And so I investigated the issues. I read loads and loads of the stuff that had been recommended to me. And I walked out for a time, I kind of held Bergen's views, uh, like he was very convincing to me when I first read him. And then I walked out with the position that today we're calling textual confidence, rather than looking at one particular text or translation as an absolute authority, realizing that it's okay that there's uncertainty about textual variants. It's okay that there's uncertainty about translations. And that's sort of how I landed it at where I'm at today.
1: And I think the fact that the gospel and Jesus are at the center of your faith, and mine too, praise God, explains a lot about why you aren't vindictive toward others. I'm going to ask you to tell a little anecdote that you've told me previously. We don't have to throw this individual under the bus, but wasn't there a sibling of yours who contacted you after it, after your public move away from King James-onlyism, and what did that sibling say?
0: Yeah, uh, I've, several of my siblings at that time were still pretty heavily involved in the movement, and also my parents, um, maybe more what you're thinking of. Uh, as a result of my shift, I ended up being asked to leave the position that the volunteer position that I had held at the church for, gosh, I think I served at that church for ten or maybe fourteen years. I don't remember working with youth, and because I was on a different page, they wanted me to to step away uh, quietly. They also wanted me never to tell anyone why, and obviously, I'm willing to tell people why. <laughs> uh, but when I did do that, my parents essentially almost disowned me. They viewed me as under church discipline and told me. Uh, In one of the longer last conversations that I had with my mom until some of the recovery that's happened in the last couple of years, uh, my mom began praying that God would punish me, that God would take my life. Uh, Because in their perspective, to be reading an NIV, and that was her big thing, I'd pick up an NIV or an ESV and read it. And from her perspective, I was blatantly following the devil at that point. So it it did cause some deep, uh, painful Interpersonal struggles with some of my family, and I praise the Lord. Some of that's been repaired in the last couple of years, not perfectly, uh, but but steps have come. To... Can I
2: can I jump in on one one point that you made that I just thought was gave me an idea? Something that I think would be helpful to point out is I think we'd want to say the scriptures are an absolute authority, mm-hmm, but absolutely. we don't want people to identify their understanding their understanding of absolute truth doesn't have to be absolute for the truth to be absolute. Yeah. Well. So, we, you know, it's, it's so that's we, we want to set up a distinction that like we are human, our understanding is finite. That doesn't mean that God's truth is finite. Right. That doesn't mean that God's truth is anything less than absolute. Just that God actually speaks to humans.
0: Yeah. Well, as I speak about textual absolutism, in my mind, what I'm thinking about as, as we sketch out these three broad positions, they're not methods of doing textual criticism their positions on the reliability of the Bible and textual absolutism, all Christians would say the Bible's our absolute authority. Right. Textual absolutism. And we would say that too. That's I would yeah. affirm absolutely, absolutely that the Bible's my absolute authority, but I wouldn't point to one particular copy of the text, a particular right. manuscript, uh, edition, or translation, and say that copy, that form of the text is my absolute authority. That's what I mean by textual absolute. And absolute I would I would
2: absolute say absolute. and we would say we'd want to avoid a fragility that says if you can if I'm wrong about anything I'm wrong about everything. Right. I think that's right. the key thing like if you can show me that I get one verse wrong yeah. then I lose my whole authority in the scripture.
0: Right? Like I used That's to hear, what we don't want. Exactly. Yeah. I used to hear that preached all the time and I had said that from the pulpit. If there's one verse in this King James Bible that's wrong, we might as well all just give up on Christianity. And I'm ashamed now to look back and think that I had built my faith in such a way thinking it was strong that it was actually so weak that one error in the King James Bible would destroy Christian faith. Like at the end of the day, that might feel stronger. That's a very weak view of the faith. And we want people to have a healthier view of the Bible and a more robust
3: view of Christianity. One one person I know tells the story of um, he had a lady come up to him who was from a Muslim background. And she said, well, you know, the Bible's got all these contradictions in them. And uh, he said, well, list them out for me. And so she went through the Gospels and wrote down these alleged contradictions, and he, he, when he told me the story, he said, I made the decision, like, I can either explain why these are not actually contradictions, or I can just take another direction and say, okay, you've proven that the Gospel authors didn't collude with each other, so what do you do with all the places that they do agree? And he went with that option. And uh, she became a Christian and has a wonderful ministry now, and and now understands that those were not contradictions. Um, But he said his his approach to it was, I I know that if I had dealt with the contradictions first, um, she would have just resisted every answer that I gave because she had made her mind up that they were contradictions instead of turning her to Jesus and the things that we don't have any doubts over. Yeah.
2: And I think, you know, just the the, the big picture is we don't think Christians should live in fear. Right. As though, you know, studying manuscripts is going to take away their faith right. or translating the Bible is going to take away their faith. We want we want ro- a robust confidence yes. that is unshakable <laughs> and that can deal with human the fact that we don't get things perfect and that's okay and God knows that and God still speaks to us. Yes. Um, and, and, and his perfect inspired word um, can do its work, yeah. even if we <laughs> don't interpret it perfectly correctly, or translate it correctly, or edit it correctly, or do anything perfectly, um, yet God's perfect word still is at work.
0: Yeah, his, yeah. The it perfect- took us on a little bit of a rabbit trail. But I just no, wanted- you're fine. I think you're right. The perfection of his word, and his word as an absolute authority, is stronger than the mistakes of scribes and translators.
1: Right, and every one of us has dug into this at real depth over many years, and I'm confident can say that it's only increased our confidence in Scripture, and I'm often thinking of what the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I cling to the Bible. It is my, it is our absolute authority, but it is important to establish exactly what that means precisely because your story, Tim, and other stories we're going to hear show that what the kind of division and even hatred can occur among truly Christian people, which is so sad and and almost impossible. Like, you know, the Bible says uh, you'll know them by their love. Um, But this issue has caused incredible division, again, even within families. So let's use that as a segue. Elijah, tell us. Elijah Hickson, who works for the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and has a is PhD the right uh, I, I forget Into the speech. terminology. Okay, uh, from University of Edinburgh, in New Testament textual criticism. New I think Testament my diploma says
3: New Testament language, literature, and theology. Okay, my thesis, the whole the book was on textual criticism. And if
1: I understand correctly, it was generally speaking, or maybe very specifically, this issue that we're talking about that set you on that path. Why don't you tell us that story?
3: Yeah. So I'm, I may be the only one here who was not in independent fundamental Baptist circles. I was raised Southern Baptist, but I'm from East Tennessee and uh, in our area where I lived, the other churches around were either King james King James only-ish or liberal. So King James is just kind of default what you use. The pastor, um, my pastor growing up used the King James till I was 12. He shifted to the new King James, but our youth pastor was, and still is today King James only. Um, and I have a ton of respect for him. I still see him from time to time. And, uh, he actually taught us the Bible. It wasn't just pizza parties and everything else, uh, in youth. And I really, really respect that about him. And I, I, you know, I have all the respect in the world for this guy. Because of that, he he was able to take Jesus more seriously than anything else and actually teach us theology and teach us about the Bible instead of um, going just King James. Um, but because of that and because of the culture that I lived in, I've, I kind of had this uh, thought in my head. If I break from this, uh, I really need to know my stuff. Like I really need to um be able to defend why I'm not using the King James or the New King James anymore. Because I'd read all that stuff about the NIV and like in it to be honest, it was years before I could read an NIV with a clean conscience. Same for sure. me. Sure. Um and it I just don't think a Christian should have to worry about that with a translation that's in use, like evangelical made in use by evangelical churches, is not coming from some heter- uh, heretical sect. Um, so that's, that's kind of half of it. The other half is when I went to college, I majored in chemistry, um, because I really like measuring things. I like to see things and, um, uh, I want to, you know, how many milliliters are in here. That's a question that you can answer by measuring it. And, uh, when I, went to seminary after that, there's all these discussions about what, you know, Pauline theology and what was Paul, I've, well, I think Paul is saying here that this, and like, well, why do you think that? Well, I just am more convinced by these arguments. And I'm like, so basically you're saying you feel like this is what Paul is saying because you feel like this is what Paul is saying. I just had no, I had, I had no patience for that. Um, and, but when you turn to manuscripts, like this is God's word that we're dealing with. And copies of God's Word, when you turn to those, you is that an alpha or is it a lambda? Well, there is an answer to that question. You might not always be able to tell, but there is an answer. Objectively, you can make measurements and you can see that. And I really love that aspect of manuscripts. Like It's God's Word, but it's also something that you can see and you can measure. Uh, and so all of that comes together, and uh, I end up in textual criticism and end up, um, writing a dissertation on purple manuscripts in the five hundreds and, you know, worrying about this little spot here. Um, I've told you before I have a friend, whenever we have dinner, he'll hand me the menu and say, Hey, there's a stain on this. You want to talk about that? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I, I, I love that. And that's sort of how I got where I am.
1: And you are one of the co-editors and co-authors of Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism, which I would describe as the newest generation of evangelical, faithful uh, New Testament textual critics trying to build on the work of the previous generation and gently correct it. And they said they appreciated it, somebody like a Dan Wallace, for whom you now work, So you have worked to increase textual confidence in your New Testament textual critical work, and we will talk way, way more about that in future episodes. Peter, you come from a similar background to Tim. You went to Heartland Baptist Bible College, and I met you at a theological society meeting some years back. We just started talking in the lobby somehow. I don't remember how that ended up happening. Why don't you tell us your story? Why are you so interested and passionate and gesticulating when you, uh, when you talk about <laughs> well, topic? I gesticulate
2: because I'm a pastor, so okay, you know, got it. got to do that. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in a pastor's home uh, in New York City, and my parents are faithful Christians and sacrificed an enormous amount to see a church started uh, in New York City. Um, and I'm just really grateful. I'm the oldest of 12 children. Um, and I'm really grateful for the Christian upbringing that I had. And I'd say in a lot of ways, like, the position I was raised in, like, at least theoretically, was a lot less extreme than some of some of the, you know, things that you were raised to believe. But in practice, though, I would say it basically comes down to the same practice that no one should ever use anything other than the King James um, and that nothing should, you know, there are no, you know, there are no mistakes in the King, in the King James. All of the translations are bad. And so, you, you know, you can have it, and that's one of the things, like, you can have a lot of nuances of all these different positions, but when the rubber meets the road, it's basically, it comes down to a very similar practice. Um, and so I went to Bible college. My dad was on the board of the directors of, of Heartland, and so I went there um, and uh, had, you know, some benefit. Uh, the, the homiletics class there is really, uh, really good, and so there was a, a lot of benefit in that. Um, but I, you know, had questions I was wanted, wanted to know. So I really was like, I want to... I want to have you know the best arguments for these positions that, that I can have you know, and so I I wanted to defend you know our position of King James you know King James uh, we, we use the King James we use the TR um, you know this is this is where we should be uh, and so like you uh, like Tim I uh, was using uh, Reading Bergen and really you know kind of one of the key things so there's there's two elements that that really got me into all of this one is I was raised with basically the idea um, that all the work has been done. So all the work of textual study has been done. All the manuscripts have been looked at. Uh, and and Erasmus and, and the, the editors of the TR, they, they did the work. The work's done. And so anyone who would want to redo that work would only have ill motives in mind. Um, that was basically the, the impression that I had. Um, and so reading Bergen um, made me realize that really was the first sort of like, I was re- sit, sit, sitting on the campus at Heartland reading the re- revision revised, <laughs> um, and I began to realize that Bergen didn't think that all the work had been done. Right. Bergen thought the work had barely been started. Right. And in fact, Bergen's argument against Westcott and Hort um, was that all the work hadn't been done yet, and they were being premature. Yep. Uh, and so that meant that my position that all the work had been done, and we just needed to defend that work, was just untenable. Uh, and so that didn't move me from like a TR perspective to, you know, well, now I'm going to you know use the NA28 or use whatever other Greek New Testament, right? I didn't know Greek at the time anyways, or, or it didn't move me from like King James to using the ESV. It just was a realization that the work hadn't been done. And then gradually I became, came to see over it was really a very gradual transition um, that not only had the work not been done, but there was no interest in seeing that work done <laughs> in the circles that I was in, and I, I began to have a, a passion um, that I wanted to see. I wanted to see the work done. Like I, I wanted to. See, I wanted to. Let's 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 have the intellectual integrity. Let's have the just moral integrity. To if we're going to say these are the most important words um, that ever have been or ever could be, we should care the most about them, and we should do the work that backs that care up. Uh, and so that that's the one 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 thread of it uh, would be the toil, uh, and the other side of it would be truth that I began to realize that so many of the things that were said about um, men like, say, Westcott and Horde, or, or even people who translated the ESV, or people who translated the NIV, or whatever, that you know, while there's certainly room for legitimate criticism in, in many of those cases, um, there wasn't a concern for truth. So I was, like, we were the only people. So you know, in, in, your, in your sense, it was like the King James was really at the center. For me, it was more, we are the true church, and everyone else is the false church. Um, that was, that was more. So it wasn't just King James, you know, just the King James. It was a particular view of church history, a particular view of the church landscape, a particular view in, in America, you know, a particular view of the King James. And it all basically boiled down to, we're the true church that has come down from the apostles. And anyone who's not with us is against us and is, you know, maybe not inspired by the devil, but is basically not doing God's work. Um, and so that, you know, it's a pretty broad, uh, and, and, and so I began to realize that. We, who supposedly were the only ones who had the truth, were telling an awful lot of lies. And in some cases, you know, now, I I don't think my dad, you know, would ever say something intentionally untrue that I was raised in, but many of the writers that I was being pointed to certainly knew better and said things that weren't true anyways. And I began to realize, like, the people who ought to know either don't, they're either culpably ignorant or they're being deliberately slanderous. And when I look at what the Bible says about slander and how seriously God takes that, I just... That was, that was like the tipping point for me, realizing, okay, the people who are caring about truth and doing the toil aren't the people who have the position uh, that I have, so I should trust those who are willing to put the work in and who are careful to tell the truth. And so really, it wasn't so much like a revision of my understanding of you know, textual history or something. It was just realizing like this position hasn't done the work and hasn't told the truth, so therefore, I shouldn't hold it. Um, and you know, like, like, like for you, Tim, it was really traumatic, you know, I mean, and, and and I still preach from the King James. Like I still, I'm a pastor of a church. So I guess I should have got that out there. I, I pastor a church in Bremerton, Westside Baptist Church, and we still use King James as the pulpit Bible of the church. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I love the King James, you know, I still use it all the time. You know, I'm using it every week. Um, but even going to a church that still uses only the King James, um, in, as a, you know, an official translation. Um, that would the fact that I was no longer at a King James only church, you know, was enough. It, you know, I got a letter from my young teenage sister. I have several teenage sisters, oh, well, they're all different ages now.
1: this was several years ago, but oh, you were the one that I was thinking of who got the letter. Yes, from Yes yeah, assembly. so one, okay. one, one of
2: my I'm sisters so was, was fourteen at the time, Yes, and you know, she writes me a letter saying, you know, basically, you know, the family was told that I'd stop believing the Bible. And you know, she writes, so I'm you know, starting to get into a PhD program, you know, I'd, I'd gone back to school and sev- several years into that, and, you know, she writes me a letter saying, I would debate you, but you're not worth my time because you're so obviously, you know, <laughs> you know, you've abandoned the faith. And and just really wanting to, you know, that was hard. That was That was hard. But really, the other part of it is seeing people, you know, who they set their faith on the wrong thing. And when that's questioned, you know, a particular view of church history, and then you can demonstrate that actually isn't true. Like it's objectively demonstrably not true. And then, and then their faith in Christ is destroyed. And just really wanting to see that the story of Christianity is bigger than us four and no more. Um, and God is fine with dealing with mess, which means he can handle our mess too. Uh, and so if everything has to be, if we, we don't have to have a God's eye, we don't have to have we don't have to know as God knows to know what God wants us to know. And, and that really was that. And it's, you know, just even the struggles that I've had of coming from a position of maximum certainty and realizing one by one, the things I've been taught to build my faith on were actually not true has been very hard just to be you know, transparent in a little bit has been very hard for me emotionally and wanting not other people wanting not to teach other people, uh, and, and set their faith up to be damaged in that way. Um, and uh, to you know the struggles that that has caused in my own life, not wanting others to go through those and so wanting to, to teach and preach in a way that that leads people to a broad-based confidence and an understanding of the big picture of what God has done from the days of the apostles and even from the days of Abraham.
1: So. I think it's really important what you said, Peter. Uh, you made some distinctions there in your story you know you obviously respect and love your father and far be it from any of us despite the admitted sins of all of our parents because they're all sinners, far be it from us to disobey the Bible's clear command, honor your father and mother, even when they sin, even when they're wrong. And one way that you honored your father was that you expressed your confidence in his, uh, you know, he he would not lie purposefully. And, and I think it's really important that people not hear us saying, all the people who are King James only are a bunch of liars. I do not believe that. Right. And I
3: don't I, believe that. I, either.
2: But no. there's, some
1: of them are trusting people who are who are leading them astray. Exactly.
2: And so, that
3: is different. Um one of the one of my recent jobs at CSNTM, I've been digitizing some of the correspondence between Maurice Robinson and Bill Pierpont, who are not uh proponents of modern, you know, they're outside the mainstream. They they edited the Byzantine text. Um but they're uh, wonderful, or were in the case of Pierpont, wonderful Christian men. And one of the things that I've seen come up a few times in the letters uh, have been them saying, like, it just bothers me that you have the people that are writing these books, and they should know better than this, but they will only quote the things that support their cause. Mm. And uh, so it's not it's not just you who recognizes this. And, I, you know, Robinson and Pierpont are not, uh, a friend to the kind of text criticism that I do. Um, but their, uh, I mean, the majority text people, there's so much about Bergen in those letters. Uh, so it's, it's not just you who's noticed that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not just the Ten Commandments that tell us not to bear false witness. And I think of that repeatedly when I read people who are culpably ignorant or slanderous, malicious, Um, taking an option like—I have a long, long article on my blog uh, that is critiquing a critique of the New King James Version that was done by someone at the Trinitarian Bible Society. I don't need to name names right here other than that institution. And he looks at translation decisions made by fellow brothers and sisters, I think, I'm not sure, in Christ— at the New King James you know, Translation Committee, and over and over and over again, he takes the most negative interpretation possible, except for one time when I feel like what he said was exactly right. He was actually charitable and understood what they did, so he could do it. He could do it right. But I just kept thinking of First Peter 2.1, I think it is, laying aside all malice, and I see that sin repeatedly. Um, and I, I just often think about how Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. And I just feel that Christian people ought to be loving the truth wherever they see it, especially in the special revelation of Scripture, but also in the general revelation, I would call it. I have a pretty broad definition of that, of experience and history, which of course isn't as authoritative as the Bible because it isn't verbal. But still, we ought to be people interested in the truth of history, including the history of the text. So I get to tell my story, and my story is probably more like Elijah's. Um, I didn't have the wrenching personal difficulties. Certainly not the division with family members that Tim and Peter have faced. But I, my parents were saved, uh, became uh, ardent Christians and Bible-believing Christians as young adults. They didn't have a Christian upbringing, except in the loose, you know, mainline Protestant sense that a lot of Americans did. At mid-century. And in fact, uh, the CSNTM offices are right across from Josh McDowell Ministries. I was just there last night with you, Elijah, and uh, uh, Josh McDowell's evidentialist apologetics were instrumental in my mother's conversion, so I will always be grateful for that ministry for that reason. And um, my parents went on a journey of learning what in the world does it mean to have Christian faith as parents? How do we raise our kids in the right way? and that brought them—they didn't go on radical pendulum swings, but they got a little progressively more conservative over time um, and then have probably moderated a, a little bit. And the most conservative that we got, we swung into a King James-only congregation. And my dad tells me he wasn't even really aware you know, that, that this was a big debate. He used the King James Version, and so a little extra oomph in its defense just kind of didn't strike him as a problem you know, he was an English major at the University of Virginia, which is where he was saved. He was actually saved reading his Bible by himself. He's one of the very few people I've ever known who can say that. And praise God, he ran into my mom and in an elevator, and she took him to a church where he could be discipled. Uh, but he, uh, it didn't. It, he just didn't really know the landscape, and he saw that this church had a Christian school, and he wanted that for his children. And now, as a father, I recognize. The financial sacrifice it was to put my sister and me through Christian school, and I am incredibly grateful. And I am specifically grateful for that King James-only Christian school and the teachers. I could name all their names who invested in me, taught me Spanish, taught me math, taught me Latin in a King James-only Christian school, for which I'll forever be grateful. That was the principal, a really special, wonderful guy. I had, there were two teachers uh, who were a married couple and they never had children. And I haven't asked them why, I don't know. And we were their children, you know, they adopted us and invested in us. And they are my friends to this day. They read my book, um, authorized. Give me my book there, Peter. I got to hold that up for anybody watching. This will come into the story later. And so when I went off to um, Bob Jones University, I actually didn't know that I had crossed uh, a line. I didn't know that I had left King james Onlyism to go to a non-King James-only institution. It just wasn't sufficiently on my radar. But I was King James-only, and I had picked that up from that church and Christian school. I do remember my pastor, who I remember as a good man and a faithful man, who was at that church for decades, uh, telling us that Westcott and Hort were bad dudes and that the King James was the only translation that anybody could trust or use. So I got that much. And even through my freshman year at Bob Jones, that wasn't shaken. I remember arguing for the supremacy, the uh, you know, the superiority of the King James as a camp counselor after my freshman year with a uh, a student who was at a more liberal school, uh, Northland, um, and that's the last time I remember being King James only. The next thing I remember is the next summer another counselor at a different camp telling me, I have a King James only camper. That's all he wants to talk about. Will you talk with him? Somewhere during my sophomore year, I don't even remember how it happened. I stopped being King James only. It was probably due to my pastor who was unlike. He didn't really want to be wrapped up in this controversy, but he was thrown into it because of the videos that Pensacola Christian College put out, the leaven of fundamentalism videos, um, attacking Bob Jones University and other fundamentalist institutions for um, uh, promoting this leaven of textual criticism, and my pastor was among the many Bible faculty members at Bob Jones who were forced to respond. He was and is an incredibly gracious guy, the center of whose theology is Jesus and the gospel. And so he did not lash out in anger, but he saw, okay, I've got to teach on this. So uh, I presume it was his teaching in that era that changed my mind. I do remember thinking, why is he taking so long at this? (laughs) You know, why don't we just change translations? Because he he convinced me very quickly. I respected him so much. His Bible exposition was just absolutely awesome. I would literally, in the literal sense of literal, sit on the edge of my seat as a seventeen year old, you know, freshman in college, and I couldn't believe it when his hour plus long sermons were done. I literally was like, I use the word literally a lot. Um, I, I yes, I couldn't believe that um, it was over. It was it was that good. He was going through Ephesians. I respected him a lot, so I trusted him, and, I, and I, I apparently changed positions because of him. But he went through this long series where I, I think lasted maybe into my junior year. I'm now getting a little fuzzy on the time. And then uh, finally at the end of it, we took a church vote. Can we officially open up Liberty to use other translations? So we didn't move away from the King James. We just were going to add, in that case, that was before the uh, the ESV came out. So the NASB and the New King James were... Um, you know, explicit ones that we were adding. And uh, I remember we took the vote, and the service was not over yet. There was more singing to do or, you know, more announcements. I can't remember. But right after the vote was taken, and it was utterly overwhelming in favor of opening up Liberty to use contemporary translations, the older man in front of me who was a deacon, and I had known, I had gone on a church workday with him, a really nice man, he got up and left. And I saw his face, and I realized— okay, that's why my pastor spent so long at this, and I realized he's never coming back. Um, No matter how careful and gracious you are, some people are not going to accept this move. Um, Then the next thing I remember in my story was that uh, one of my professors recommended an NIV, and I felt like I could barely even touch the thing. It just felt like it's corrupted, and I specifically remember, remember thinking, okay, my professor knows the Bible really well. He told me that I can do this in a good conscience, so I'm gonna do it. And I picked it up and I saw that all of the verses were collected into paragraphs rather than every verse being its own paragraph. And I was like, no, no, that cannot be right. And now I'm a major proponent of reader's Bibles. I love that format. And uh, I I don't like verse by verse formats anymore. So my conscience was bound on multiple levels. Um, then the next part of my story really is, I tried to keep it a little shorter. Um, This has been a huge part of all of our lives. We could go on and on, we're going to for the rest of these uh, podcasts and video podcasts. I was deeply involved in evangelism uh, at camps and on the street and in the neighborhoods that were not so nice around my church. I ultimately moved into the not-so-nice neighborhood. Uh, My wife, I realized later, was afraid to walk the, the, the kids around in strollers in that neighborhood. It's that kind of neighborhood. And I saw over and over and over again people's eyes would glaze over and I just when people were quoting the King James to them and I just thought what are we doing and I remember being at a Christian camp that was part of the Bob Jones world anybody in that world would know which one I'm talking about and the rule was you had to use the King James because there were churches that were sensitive about it and I understood that and I was following it but I was counseling this kid who had come forward after the service and he was a bus kid you know, as I recall and you know, he didn't have he, he wasn't a church kid Um, and I started reading from the King James and the look he gave me, he just didn't get it. And I happened to have a NASB in my back pocket, which today I think is not a whole lot better (laughs) when it comes to teaching bus kids, but it certainly was better, uh, in that case. And I pulled it out and I was like, I do not care. I'm going to have to break this rule because what is more important right now is that this kid understand the verses that I'm reading to him about the gospel I don't. I'm really tired of having to translate the Bible into modern English on the fly in evangelism, and uh, that is probably what I would say, you know, motivated me or even radicalized me on this issue. I saw that people I really love, that I was the pastor of, ultimately at the end of my time in Greenville for five and a half years, I was basically the bus church pastor, and I loved those functionally illiterate adults who were utterly bowled over by the King James version. So we used the new International Reader's Version, which is made for um, children and prisoners, basically. And we loved it. And I, I could stop explaining the English and start explaining the Bible to people. Um, and I saw there is room in this debate for uh, another book, authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, because I also saw when you, when you ask about um, where are people culpable for being wrong on this stuff, I realized as a 15- or 14-year-old listening to my King James-only pastor, I don't think I was culpable for believing what he said about Westcott and Hort. You know, he seemed to know, he was very confident. He's supposed to know this stuff. I was an art kid. I liked graphic design back at the time. I had no idea I'd be a Bible teacher. That, was, that came much later. Uh, and, and so I thought, well, what, what was wrong in what I did? And where in the Bible can I be held responsible for not knowing something the Bible said or not obeying it in, in this debate? And I realized it doesn't have anything to do with textual criticism. Um, not at that age. It had to do with uh, 1 Corinthians 14 that we'll get to that says edification requires intelligibility. I was accepting a view in which, you know, I knew there were a bunch of archaic words in the King James, but I didn't see that as a problem. To me, that was actually a measure of my stature above other Christians because I was, you know, you know getting the, the real stuff, and I was willing to put the work in, and frankly, I felt a myself to be smarter than other people because I could read the King James just fine. Uh, And I I came to see that was where the error of most people, including pastors, in the King James-only movement lies, I think. So I wrote a book that doesn't talk about textual criticism at all. Sorry, New Testament textual critics. Uh, I have a one-page spread where I explain why I shouldn't have to talk about it, and that's it. And I talk about English readability and what effect archaisms have on our ability to understand the King James. And uh, in God's providence, I started a YouTube channel on which some people are watching this right now. And I've, I've loved the ministry of reaching out to my brothers and sisters in the King James-only world and seeing um, how gracious so many of them are despite the way that they have been told untruths. One of them said, she read my book, And she looked up and she said, I've been lied to my whole life. And that's a really tough place to be in. I feel a lot of compassion. I didn't have to go through that wrenching difficulty. I want to move people from textual absolutism to textual confidence with as little (laughs) of that wrenching difficulty as possible. And I pray, we were praying before this started, that that would be what the Lord does. So as we uh, wrap up this episode, let's just talk about some of the overarching commitments that we have. Where are we wanting to bring people? What are the key takeaways that we're hoping listeners, viewers will walk away with after they go through this, Lord willing, series of seven episodes? So, Elijah, why don't you start us out with one of the overarching commitments, things we'd like people to walk away with?
3: Yeah, well, we would love for everyone to renew their commitment to telling the truth. Um, that's an issue that's come up before, it's come up with Peter, it comes up with me, it's one of the things that sort of drives me is that I I can't, it just bothers me that a, a Christian professing believer who would have the Holy Spirit would um, be untrue. Um, slander against our brothers and sisters in Christ is a sin, even if they're getting something wrong, it's still a sin to slander. Um, you know, it's the, a verse that everybody knows, but it's still good to read it. Exodus twenty sixteen: you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Part of me wants to suggest that maybe if we're going to accuse someone of uh, something that isn't true, maybe it's not a bad idea to stop and ask, have I interpreted what you said correctly? Is this right? Um, you know, when we defend the truth with lies, we set up those who trust us uh, to have their faith in Scripture destroyed. Like that—that's just you can't. You know, a friend of mine said, "I just don't believe you can defend the Bible as God's uh, true and accurate word with untruths and inaccuracies." And I think he's—he's he's right about that. God's Spirit leads His people to the truth, and if we build their faith. In Scripture, on a foundation of lies, um, then when they discover the problems with that foundation, their faith in Scripture can fall with that foundation. That's one of the reasons I co-edited "Myths and Mistakes," as we see all, all of these apologists who mean really well, but they're uh, repeating things that were true in the '40s, and since then, new discoveries have shown up, and it, you know, in some places it's Googleable that this is just wrong. So, what's that doing? um it's not helpful it's not helpful if you're telling you should you telling people you should believe this um for these reasons and they find out that the reasons are wrong that's that's a bad situation you're setting up uh, I mentioned the Robinson and Pierpont correspondence and I just love that their approach to uh god's word as christians they're just thoroughly Christian even if i don't- uh i don't agree with their method um I love their mindset. And in one of the letters, uh, Bill Pierpont copied a letter that he had written to a uh, a person defending a reading in the King James with a lot of untruths. And it's, it's a harsh letter at, at, in some points. Um, because he cared about the truth. And at the very bottom, I, I'll read you what he said, because I just this struck me and it strikes me every time It's just a beautiful illustration of, of the right mindset. Um, he says, brother, I have not written to criticize, but only in the hope of helping. May God himself and the blessed person of the Holy Spirit guide you. How careful we must be in our every approach to God's word, lest we bring dishonor to him. Oh, that I agree so much with that. We have to be so careful.
1: That So that's a takeaway we want people to have. Um, we can tell in debate when we're going back and forth with people, whether we're on the textual absolutist or textual skeptic side, which kind of meet anyway, um, there are people we respect who we feel, even when we disagree, have a commitment to truth. And there are folks that, among ourselves in our little Facebook group that we've had going for years now, are just... You know, shaking our heads. How how could a professing Christian do this? By God's grace, we are committed to truth, and we want that to be the case. And we are willing for people to please identify places where we've made inadvertent mistakes. We are fallen and finite, or at least Peter is. And Peter, <laughs> would you like to— Definitely fallen, very finite. Very <laughs> finite, very fallen. Talk to us about another takeaway. Talk to us about the Plowboys.
2: Yeah. So, you know, the first thing, obviously, is is what we, we just mentioned, that we want Everyone to renew their commitment to telling the truth. The second one is we want everyone to remember the scriptures are for the plowboys as well as the pastors. Now, we need, you know, we're going to talk about this. We need experts. We need people who know Greek, who know Hebrew, who know the other rele- lots of other relevant languages you need to learn to do this sort of work. Um, and we need people who are experts in the interpretation of scripture to be able to teach. But if we're going to tell people that they ought to read the Bible for themselves. And we do. And we do. And we do. And we do. Then we need to give them a Bible they can read. And I just think, you know, I, I William Tyndale is like my absolute hero yes. because he's one of the most incredibly brilliant. Link, like he is a a brilliant scholar um, by any standard, any modern day standard. He's a brilliant scholar, um, and yet he cares about the plowboys and and he wants the plowboys to be able to pick up the Bible and they're not going to understand everything. They're not going to maybe have all the insight that a, you know a brilliant scholar like Tyndale had, uh, but. They're going to be able to get truth from the scriptures, but it has to be translated. And, and this is one of the things, Just I, I left this out of my story, but like, you know, the King James it's not going to be very far down the road before the King James English is as unintelligible to the average person as Latin was. We forget how pervasively available Latin was in the 1500s. Um, so lots of people knew Latin. So, like, I don't want to be in the position, well, you just need to learn Latin, and then you can have right. the Bible. Right. Like, No, like, translate it into, you know, I think the, the equivalent of the plowboy, it'd be like saying the boys in the basketball court in that neighborhood that you don't want to walk around with yeah. in the stroller. That you want, you want to be able to bring a Bible, and you want to be able to say, take this home and read it, and read the Gospel of Mark, or read the Gospel of John, and learn about Jesus for yourself, and be able to see who Jesus is without needing to buy a 20 volume Oxford English dictionary uh, so that you know what the words meant in 1611, you know, like to get a Bible, you can go away and give away Bibles right. and people can, right. can read the Bible. And it's like, like, we don't want to take that away from
1: people. God right. speaking to me in my language, you know, one of the wonderful providential ironies of my life is that I was the, the star of the school play my senior year at this King James only Christian school. And I was William Tyndale and I was burned at the stake and I had to say those words Ere many years, I shall cause that the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And those are that note, as John Piper puts it, um, regarding uh, William Tyndale. He's always saying one note. I feel like I'm singing that same note in a 21st century key. We've got to come to an end here, but I want to make sure we spent some real time mapping out what we want to say. Tim, has the Holy Spirit left Christ Church? Mm.
0: Yeah, I think absolutely not. And we need to be careful to keep in mind Jesus promises to his disciples in John 14 that he'd leave them a comforter, and that comforter has always been there. So whatever position we take on the text, if we land at a position that won't, say, for example, allow any difference in wording from the King James Bible, we don't mean to. But what we've done is stolen the Bible from all those generations before 1611. We've said, well, they they maybe had something, but they didn't have a perfect text. They didn't have a pure text. We've got to be so careful not to do that, because the same spirit in us today was in them then. Jesus promised it. Yeah, Jesus John promised 16. it. That's core. God with us. And,
2: right. and we can still do the work of translating. If the Bible could be translated in 1611 and can't be translated today, then we're saying something that this, Jesus' has promise hasn't been
0: fulfilled. Right. Right. That's and a scary thing to say. It is. And it's so much more fundamental than just our position on the text. Now exactly. we're talking about God. God himself and his presence in the church. And his promises to the church. Yeah. And, and a second thing that I would add there about the comforter's presence is Jesus warns us in Matthew 12 as he gets accused of doing miracles by the spirit of Beelzebub. And he talks about, uh, you know, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's just so clear that Jesus never wants people to look at something that's the work of God and say, yes. oh, that's Satan. And wherever you land on these textual issues, whichever of the three broad positions, I want to encourage you just to be extremely careful that you don't look at something. And if you're not absolute, call out Satan where Satan's present, obviously. But if you're not absolutely certain, be so careful, so cautious. You don't want to look at a believer who God's working in that's translated in an ESV or an NIV and they're on a Bible committee and say, oh, well, that's Satan. And Jesus warned us that that's a very dangerous sin to commit. Absolutely. Yeah. We feel
1: that the people who are currently the loudest in defending exclusive use of the King James Version are actually not on the same theological and practical page as the King James translators. And I am constantly told on my YouTube channel, why do you hate the King James Bible? You are criticizing the King James Bible. I insist over and over again until I am puce in the face. That's, you know, a really bright red (laughs) color that uh, I love the King James Bible, and I think I love it more than those who are trying to defend it right now because I have the same perspective on it that the King James translators do. And actually, all my work on the King James has genuinely made me appreciate it more. So one of the big takeaways we want everyone to come away from uh, this series with is to grow in their appreciation of the work and the perspective of the King James translators. We are not attacking the King James. The King James is the Word of God. Right. Uh, just the way the the preface says, we love that preface, the King James is a historical landmark of of English language and culture that has great value and will continue to have value as long as people can read uh, any of its English. And many Christians have read it and will continue to read it. We are not saying, go to your grandma's house and rip that King James out of her hands. Uh, we are saying what uh, Spurgeon said, do not needlessly amend our authorized version. It is faulty in many places, but still is a grand work, taking it for all in all, and it is unwise to be making every old lady distrust the only Bible she can get at, or what is more likely, mistrust you for falling out with her cherished treasure. Correct where correction must be for truth's sake, but never for for the vainglorious display of your critical ability. And there are a couple truths we're trying to protect here when we... Have to say that the King James is not perfect. One of them is that the Bible doesn't say we're going to get a perfect translation. That has proven to be a very divisive teaching within the church. And another truth that we're trying to protect here is that the Bible is for the plowboy, that God's word is meant to be given to God's people in a translation into their language.
2: Our last takeaway, we want everyone to grow in their confidence in the scriptures as God's word. That we want to move people, we want people to be anti-fragile in their confidence of the scriptures, that they can learn without being in fear, without having to, to, to feel like they've, they've got to know everything to know anything. Right. Um, and that's we just want to move people away from that, and we want to make people less vulnerable uh, to the arguments of textual skeptics. We don't want them to go to a university or go to a workplace, and someone's like, did you know? And they come to believe. We don't want people to have to pick between trust and truth. Right. We want people to realize that, hey, we can, we can grow in our understanding of truth without losing access to the truth. And that, I think, is really important, and that's the heart that we're not trying to fundamentally take something away from people. We're trying to give them something. Yeah. We're trying, to, we're trying to, to increase their confidence in the Word of God.
1: Textual skepticism, textual absolutism, and textual confidence. Listeners, viewers of these sessions will be, Lord willing, brought to greater and greater textual confidence. Absolutely. So super I quick, Tim, as we wrap up, you tell us about the first Three sessions people are going to hear after this, and then Peter, you
0: tell us about the last three. Yeah, so in the next three sessions, the very next session, we're going to talk about the history of textual absolutism, absolutism, and because we're taking this broad perspective, we can step back long before the King James and show how this impulse has existed and been held by good, godly, respected men throughout the history of the Church, so we'll frame things that way. The podcast after that We'll talk about the theology that drives textual absolutism. What are the presuppositions that cause people to want to accept that view? the, the Bible very natural. verses that lead them Yeah, reaction. the Bible verses. We're going to do some exegesis of the Bible verses that are very commonly used as part of that theology. And then in the third session, uh, or the fourth actually from here, we'll talk about just in detail the story of the creation of the Greek text behind the King James Bible and the story of the creation of the King James Bible itself and try and set ourselves on a better historical footing. Peter.
2: Yeah, so we're going to talk uh, about the materials for textual confidence. We're saying, you know, we need to do the toil to, to keep working on the materials that God has given us. So what, what has God given us? The manuscripts. We're going to talk about what a manuscript is and what kind of manuscripts there are and how many there are. And then all the other uh, sources of information about the history of the text that we have. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. And then uh, in the next session, we're going to talk about the trajectory of textual confidence. And we're going to show how this work of toil um, has been going on from the beginning the beginning from the second century, from, the, from you know, the, the decades after the text was first given, all the way down. It's, it's a continuous labor of love that needs to continue, and we need to give ourselves to it in the present. Uh, and then the last one, we're going to wrap, wrap up with uh, continuing the legacy of confidence, and so we're going to come back to these takeaway points that we, we discussed in this episode and to spend a little bit more time on them, wrap up everything, uh, and then give some uh, resources uh, that would help you to take the next steps in, in growing in textual competence.
1: And we invite all fascists and communists to listen to the very end of the podcast series. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. You can find this podcast on Dr. Mark Ward's YouTube channel and anywhere else you find audio podcasts. Be sure to visit our website, www.textualconfidence.com.